Turn to Daniel chapter 3 if you have your Bibles. Uh, we're going to spend or continue in our series this morning in Daniel chapter 3 uh, that we started a few weeks ago. Um, I think we were having some issues with the slides, so unfortunately we might not have all of it, but um, if, uh, I'll read through the passage, and if you have your Bibles, you can follow along, and hopefully we'll have it on the screen too. So um, Daniel chapter 3, uh, Shannon covered the first part of this last week, and so we're going to pick up in verse 16 and go through all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 30. So uh, follow it uh, along with me if you have your Bibles. In verse 16, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. But the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. But King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out, of the, out from, from the fire, and the satraps and the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue you in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. If you've been around church for any time or as a kid or have attended Sunday school or, you know, attended VBS or youth, um, you've heard the story before. You know, it's the three men and the fiery furnace. Um, and oftentimes, I think, uh, you know, we are, 
versions of Bible stories kind of get frozen in time from when we last heard them, and oftentimes it's uh, some kid version of the story. Um, uh, Lindsay and I um, read to Ezra from the children's Bible story, and his favorite, at least has been for the last two weeks, it changes every few weeks, is Jonah and the big fish, with the emphasis on the big fish. Uh, you know, and um, we, 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 when we teach him uh, or read the story, we emphasize that the story of Jonah is not about the fish, but rather about Jonah's disobedience and how God brought about the repentance through this fish. Ezra doesn't care. It's, it flies above his, uh, over his head. Uh, he's still interested about this fish and how it swallowed Jonah, etc. And I guess it's okay for a three-year-old to think that, and hopefully as he grows and matures in his uh, faith, that he's able to recognize that the disobedience is the main uh, story, uh, main point of that story. I think sometimes we do that same thing with this story. Uh, coincidentally, we were, this kind of came up in the morning Bible study about how sometimes we can't express all of the aspects of a story to children or um, depending on where you are in your faith, and sometimes pieces get uh, dropped off. And uh, this story this morning, as I kind of read and was preparing, this, uh, preparing for our time together, I kind of realized, like, this story is really not a kid's story. There's a lot of violence, uh, angry king wants to tear limb from limb, like, not quite the kid's story that I would uh, picture it. So, um, so even though um, we, uh, I'm coming in in the middle of Daniel chapter 3, I want to spend some time kind of giving you guys a few word images to kind of hang on to that will help us kind of look at the story a little bit differently, kind of mature uh, in our understanding of this story so that we can kind of benefit uh, from this story, not just as a ch- children's tale, but as a tale that is important to us as adult believers. Uh, so to that end, um, as we kind of look at uh, this passage or this narrative, uh, there's kind of two, two things for us to hold on to. The first is this idea of living in exile. And I think uh, that word is probably not something that we think about or um, hear a lot or use a lot in our daily vocabulary, right? Uh, what, is, what does that mean, exile, etc.? But um, uh, throughout Scripture, exile or being in exile is a very common theme. Uh, starting in the book of Genesis, you know, God creates Eden, uh, creates man, and man and God have a perfect union where they're in perfect uh, relational harmony. And God cares for them as they serve God. And then by chapter 3, we see the fall. And a man's disobedience uh, causes God to um, exile man out of the garden. And it creates a separation between God and man. That disobedience introduces death into mankind. And the uh, biblical authors call this idea of separation between man and God as spiritual death. Essentially death uh, because that enters mankind because they are cut off from the source of life, which is God. And then man is now lives in exile, wanders, uh, and we see that story uh, throughout the pages of Scripture. God sends Jesus to restore this relationship, and in his uh, reconciliation, we, as people that put our trust in Jesus, now are reconciled to him and are now children of God. Okay, and that essentially is the gospel story that uh, you've heard in some form or fashion. But one thing that happens is as soon as we become children of God, we become exiles in this world. 
because we then become enemies of the world that we live. We essentially become strangers and foreigners to the culture that we live in as believers. And Peter describes this uh, really well in his, uh, in his epistle in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your con- conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So here Peter exhorts believers to live as exiles. He says that this is your identity now as, as followers of God. And so, you know, um, you may know this, but if you don't, being a Christian is not join, joining the popular club at school or uh, in your neighborhood, right? This is not a position of um, position to be popular in, really. He calls us sojourners and exiles, people that are strangers in our own country. And so kind of what does that mean for us uh, to live as exiles? And that, I think, will, is what uh, Daniel and the book of Daniel is trying to answer for us, and we'll come back to that question. Well, the second image, so keep hold on to the exile, the idea of exile, but the second image is this idea of Babylon. So Babylon, again, you might think of it as an uh, empire that, was, that, uh, that, used to be, that used to exist, that no longer exists. Um, now, Babylon was a real empire that destroyed uh, Israel, around 587 B.C., um, and it kind of took all of the Israelites into exile. But if you look throughout Scripture, you'll notice that Babylon is actually an image or a stand-in for anything that opposes God's rule. Uh, and actually, if you look in the book of Genesis, the word you've probably heard of the story of the Tower of Babel. Um, the word, if you actually uh, translate it in, in the Hebrew, it actually tr- uh, translates Babel, which essentially is the uh, short for Babylon. And so Babylon, uh, even beyond the actual nation or the empire, appears in Scripture for anything that demands our allegiance that is only reserved for God. Anything that demands our allegiance uh, and our trust um, essentially is a picture of Babylon. And I think that's essentially a good way for us to think about Babylon and this living in exile. So sometimes uh, we can think of these stories as far away, not relevant to us. You know, we're not going to be in a furnace or be under an angry king, hopefully. But these uh, images, and I, I think these two images help us recognize that uh, the story that, we, we, um, that we're reading today, and essentially all of uh, Daniel, is a reminder that the world we live in and the culture that we live in has sought to displace God as the ultimate authority, has sought to remove all the guardrails that God has put in place, and it has started demanding that we worship the culture or uh, some other entity other than God himself. So how is that relevant to Daniel itself? Well, Daniel and his three friends set a pattern for us on how to think about what it means to live in exile. Essentially, that's essentially what the story of Daniel, it's a pattern for us as, as believers. So um, as, you look, as you look at the narratives and the stories that appear in Daniel, they're popular kid stories, but they're also uh, is a, they're a natural framework for, and, a, or, and a lens to kind of look at, reflect on our own lives and our own culture and our own way of living to see how do we faithfully live as exiles as Peter uh, exhorts us to do. And so Daniel doesn't, or the book of Daniel does not give us a list of what we must do, or a list of what we mu- you know, shouldn't do, 
but rather it gives us these narratives. And the, through these narratives, we are to glean what it means to live as exiles. So that kind of two word images to hold on to as we kind of look at the rest of Daniel, but also the, today's story as we kind of dig into the rest of chapter 3. And it kind of brings me to the first point uh, in this passage, and that is uh, verses 16 uh, through um, 16 through 18. And in 16 through 18, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answers the king, and he says, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to conform to the culture that they live in for the sake of comfort. They refuse to conform for the sake of comfort. And so as you looked at this, this um, verses 16 through 18, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stating their refusal to bow down to this king, uh, excuse me, bow down to the, uh, be obedient to the king and bow down to this statue that he had set up. Now they were clear uh, on where they were going, they were not willing to comply. If you remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, as if you remember the story up to this point, they are actually have privileged positions in the king's court. They're ruler, they're, they're, they have uh, their royalty uh, by birth, but they're also ruling over different parts of Babylon. So they, they have quite a few privileges. Um, they have every reason to not um, st- stand up against the king, but they decide to do so. They've complied with a lot of things. Comp- they, they wear Babylonian clothes, they serve Babylonian, the Babylonian nation, they are uh, they're obedient to the laws of the land, except this one. Because as Jewish boys, and that's really what they were to the best of our uh, estimation, they're probably young adults, uh, they complied with a lot, but where they drew the line is giving their allegiance to something other than the true God of Israel. They knew from the Jewish scriptures, that if they bow down to this idol, they would be disobeying their own God. They would be breaking the first two commandments that they had kind of lived and been, and been taught. And so that's the line that they drew. And oftentimes that's one of the tensions we live in, right, as exiles, is where do we comply and where do we refuse? Right? And it's not always clear on what those lines are, but this is where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego drew the line. A couple of things that I want to point out that stood out to me as I looked at this passage is this, how calmly they stated their refusal. Uh, and I think it, it, it is, it's, not, um, it's not a point that we should, we should miss, but rather uh, when uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego expressed their resistance, it was grounded not in a grievance, but in the character of God. So if you look at how they uh, answer the king, uh, they, uh, they say, uh, they t- tell the king, but be, if not in verse 18, but if not, be it known to your king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Sorry, that's in verse 17. It says, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand. And essentially what they, uh, the, the boys respond to the king is, your fiery furnace is going to harm us. It's going to kill us but we refuse to bow down to your, uh, to your idol. They were not disrespectful. 
They, you see how the way they interact with the king is in a very uh, respectful manner, but they are steadfast in their resistance. And I think a lot of times um, when we as believers face resistance or uh, persecution for our faith, the way we respond uh, can be to lash out, to go on social media, to uh, talk about it, to maybe take legal action or whatever the case may be. But I think it's important uh, that we, we notice that Shadrach, Misha, and Abednego just put their faith in the hand of God. Their, their resistance is grounded in the character of the God they worshipped. Whether, whether he saves them or not, they are confident that, he, that this is the right decision. And I think while there's a time and place for us to demand justice and to remand, um, you know, change, uh, I think it's, um, we should resist the urge to respond to persecution out of our own grievance, out of our own hurt. Because I think what happens is that just um, causes the cycle of harm and, the, uh, and kind of makes this, uh, makes this the, uh, an issue that takes away from the glory of God. But I think just like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we need to rely and depend on God as our vindicator and not depend on our own schemes and our own ideas and our own way of living. And I think the, so that's kind of the first thing that stood out to me in this, in this section. But the second, and I think more important point, is uh, that they didn't allow their comfort to get into the way of their conviction. They didn't allow their comfort to get in the way of their conviction. So they knew that Nebuchadnezzar was a great and powerful king, but they knew that he was no god, and his claim to be god uh, uh, by the statue that he set up was a falsehood that they were not willing to go along with. Their disobedience to God for the sake of comfort was too big or too high of a price to pay. I think we, I, I don't think, I think it goes without saying that as human beings, we have this tendency to want to fit into kind of the circles that we move in, right? Whether it's the workplaces, the our, uh, communities that we live in, or the clubs that we're part of, or the act- hobbies that we're part of. We want to be like these people that we spend time with, and they want to be like us, right? And so this idea of standing up and kind of going against the grain is oftentimes very uncomfortable, but I think that's essentially what the scriptures and especially the Dan- uh, Daniel story calls us to do as exiles who are living uh, under God's authority. Now, um, oftentimes uh, it's not between a furnace and a king, like I mentioned. It's probably between, not, you know, it's probably not even between life and death. Thankfully, not yet. Uh, but it may be between being nice and being truthful. Okay. Now, I'm not saying you can't do both, but oftentimes in a world that's um, unrelenting to God's truth, no matter how truthful you are and no matter how kind you are, it's often unacceptable. And so it's oftentimes a choice uh, between standing up for the truth uh, versus fitting in. And there's a lot to unpack here um, and lots of uh, implications that kind of come out of that uh, thought. But I think one area that I want us to think about, and this kind of may sound a little bit confusing, uh, but I think one area that we need to think about this as exiles of how this um, applies in our own life from an implication standpoint is how we conduct our own lives. 
um, as we think about and look at our own lives and our families' lives, we look at our own rhythms, routines, and rituals as a family and in our own personal lives, I think it's important that we put this lens uh, on as we look at it. Because I, and I've talked about this before in other sermons, and I kind of keep coming back to this idea, because I think it's such a subtle way in which the enemy distracts us, where with, while we have this need to fit in, we jam-pack our schedules to, uh, with kids' activities, work, or vacations, and, uh, what, what, and whatnot. And oftentimes, that takes away from our ability to um, model our life or mold our lives around God's priorities. Oftentimes, the cultural priorities or the priorities around us often influence how we conduct our lives instead of focusing on God's priorities as kind of the theme. And oftentimes, uh, we, we think that being a Christian is, means to stand up for God, and oftentimes it really, uh, living as a Christian, is oftentimes, at least in the context that we live in, is going against the grain of culture and everyday mundane uh, acts of life. What do we prioritize in our family? What do, what do we uh, spend time focusing on as we dis- dis- uh, disciple our children? Is it around the next exciting activity or the next um, a sports event um, or is it the next vacation that we are planning to take um, or is it, is it our job? What takes kind of priority in our, uh, in our uh, own family lives and in, in the way we model our, um, our lives? Because oftentimes that is one way we can stand out as distinct and, and live as exiles compared to the people around us where we reject the pressure to go, 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 and oftentimes say no, because this allows me and my family to worship on Sunday or to go to Bible study or to spend time together as a family uh, in prayer. And oftentimes, uh, this allows us to build our lives around God's priorities and reject the pressure to build our lives around the culture's priorities. Now, please don't hear me, uh, mishear me that kids' activities and vacations and jobs and uh, our bad things are all good things. They're all things that God has given us, um, and we don't want to, um, you know, we don't want to despise them. But uh, the point is to not allow those things to dictate what fits our schedule or what uh, what we will model our life after. Uh, that's essentially the 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 point that I make. We don't want to allow those good things to be things that take ultimate precedence in our lives. The, um, recently, uh, a few weeks back, Lindsay and I, uh, kind of my family and I, um, traveled to New York. Um, uh, it's been a few, uh, few years uh, that we've gone back to, but some of you may know I used to live in New York City, um, and so kind of going back was good to see family. Uh, but one of the things, so my family lives in Staten Island. If you don't know anything about New York City, it's one of the boroughs in New York City, uh, kind of the suburbs. Um, we, one of the things that you'll notice... Um, when you, move, when you visit New York City or just live there is the enclaves uh, that kind of get built up. And one of the enclaves that's very interesting to see is kind of the Hasidic Jews and kind of how they live their lives. So essentially, because they can't drive on uh, Saturdays um, or during their Sabbaths, they essentially live around their, temp- their synagogue or their Hebrew schools. And uh, so while we were there, uh, kind of is just a good reminder, since it's been a while since I went back, to, to see how these families live their lives. And so there's a couple of uh, Hasidic Jews that moved into the street that my uncle lives in. 
uh, um, and on Friday night, when it was time for Sabbath, everybody observed the Sabbath in their house. It didn't matter if it was a three-month-old baby or a, a teenager or an adult. Everybody observed the Sabbath. Um, and from sundown on Friday night to sundown on, on Saturday night, uh, they observed the Sabbath. And I think it's interesting to, to watch that. Uh, it's actually um, funny in some ways because if you happen to be walking around on Saturday morning, and they see you, um, they'll sometimes invite you into their house to turn off a light switch because that might have been left on by accident. So this is, it's, it's a little bit interesting. Now, we don't want to have legalistic uh, views of Sabbath and those types of things. It's not the point. But it's interesting to see how they conduct their lives and mold their families' schedules and priorities around, uh, around their religious beliefs, about, around what they consider a priority. And so I think it's, uh, it's always a re- good reminder for me as we watch, as, as kind of we watch those, uh, those families build that for us to, as a good reminder for us, no matter where they live, whether they live in America, Europe, Africa, where they live, on Friday nights, everybody is going, to, going on Sabbath. And I think it's, it's an important reminder for us that uh, in the middle of living our lives that we don't forget uh, that the lens that we keep on as exiles is God's priorities and not our own priorities. Okay, I think uh, hopefully that was um, uh, hopefully that was something that that uh, we can reflect on as we think about this story. That brings me to the second point, and that is that persecution is inevitable for exiles. Persecution is inevitable for exiles, and so we look at uh, verses 19 all the way through the end of uh, oh sorry through the end of um, verse 25 we see um, how the king carries out his threat to punish the boys. There are some details, if you look at this, this section, um, how the king goes about it. Uh, you know, the, Daniel uh, kind of records a couple of details that I think that are important. He talks about how Nebuchadnezzar's expression was, uh, was changed. Essentially, his face was, he was so angry, his face was twisted. Um, he calls, uh, he orders the mighty men, uh, some of his mighty men of his army, to bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He orders to turn up the furnace seven times hotter. Um, there was no way to actually control that seven times. It was just an expression to say it's as hot as it can get. Um, and typically, he, he, he asks them to be bound and thrown in the furnace, uh, even without taking their clothes off, which was a typical practice where their clothes were removed before they were thrown in the furnace. They, he didn't even want to wait for that. Uh, and the furnace was so hot and the ur- order was so urgent, we read in verse 22, that the flames actually killed the uh, king's mighty men. Like I said, not a kid's story. Uh, right? All of these details tell, tell us how intense the punishment was intended to be by the king. Now, if you've, again, if you've lived any long, you know that life brings its own set of trials and hardships. Uh, there's sickness, and there's children who walk away from the faith, and job loss, financial hardships, lots of different things that um, kind of uh, come into our own lives. But I think one of the things I want to point out is that the persecution that these boys faced was something that was specific to their faith, where they, what they believed about God had to be put aside for them to live. And they didn't, cons- they didn't think that that was a price worth paying. And so unfortunately, uh, even beyond the trials, uh, we shouldn't be surprised when perse- persecution comes for all of us because of what we believe about God. Um, 
Again, Peter is instructive here um, as he reminds us in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 16, where um, Paul reminds us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so, like, like I mentioned, Peter, in so many words, is telling us that persecution eventually comes for every believer. And that we should not consider it an anomaly or a strange thing that we are somehow persecuted because we believe God is the ultimate authority and not um, culture or the government or uh, entertainment. And oftentimes, again, like I mentioned, it's probably not a furnace or an angry king that we have to bow down. Oftentimes it's to compromise in small, unethical ways, whether it's at our job, whether it's the business that we run, or it also may be around prioritizing something else other than God, like I mentioned. Uh, for some, and I think this is probably a temptation that we all face at some point in our lives, is to look to culture to, um, to tell us what is right and wrong and rejecting God's definition of right and wrong, good and bad, uh, and to look to culture to d- help us see what is right and what is wrong. And I think that is something that we all, will, uh, we all face currently or will face as, as we kind of uh, lean more into our faith. Um, the, and so as believers are, are exiles, we kind of have to, sh- and we, we should be careful not to shy away from these things or consider it strange. But rather, when we experience these, we must lean in and ask God for grace and fuel our resistance with our trust in Him. We must trust Him and His goodness to be able to lead us through these trials. The next point that we see in the story, verses 26 uh, through the middle, through the rest of uh, 30, excuse me, sorry, verses 24 through the end of... um, uh, through the end of 26, uh, where Nebuchadnezzar uh, see, uh, is watching what's happening in the furnace. And kind of brings me to the third point where no matter what the trials are or persecutions are, God promises us His presence. God promises us His presence. So as, as believers, we may be exiles, but we're not orphans. We're still children of God. Of God. We're sons and daughters, and He watches over us. So we see uh, in verse 24, the boys being thrown in the furnace, um, and the king and all his uh, government officials are watching to see, what the, to see them be burned up and consumed, but they're astonished by what they see. They see that the boys are standing up, they're, they're unbound, their ropes have been uh, burned up, and there's a fourth person standing in the fire with them. Now, I mean, this is the kid's story that's often told, and I think it's pretty awesome still as an adult. Uh, that we see God, and I think, I think it was, I, I personally think this was um, a theophany, which is essentially God appearing, kind of a pre-incarnate version of Jesus appearing in the furnace. But we see something like the Son of God or an angel of God appearing in the furnace with these boys. And I, and I think it's a good reminder for us 
that no matter how hot the furnace is, seven times hotter, no matter how angry the king is, no matter how uh, rough our persecution is, God promises to be with us. Now, he doesn't promise us to keep us from the furnace or from the persecutions or from the trials, but he does promise that when we are going through them, that he will be with us. And I think that's something that we can take heart in. And we can declare with the psalmist, as David uh, declares in Psalm 23, uh, that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Um, and we can, uh, we can um, take heart in the promises that, throughout, that tells us throughout Scripture to fear not, for God is with us. I think the, um, it's not even clear that the boys themselves knew that this, Im, this uh, fourth, Im, fourth person was in the fire. Uh, it just, uh, the, scripture doesn't, the passage doesn't tell us that. But we know that everybody that was on, looking on, on what was happening saw the, the fourth, uh, fourth person in the fire. And so sometimes, and I think it's a, a point for us to think about, is sometimes we're not aware or we don't experience God when we're in the middle of the trial. Like how we only experience the pain and the suffering that we're enduring. And so oftentimes it requires us to go to God's word, be in community, be in prayer, first to remind ourselves that God is actually with us. Uh, and that no matter what we're feeling in the moment, no matter what the circumstances are, that God is present with us. It is, um, I mean, I think it's a question that often comes is why do we go through persecutions? Why do we, why do we have to, why does this have to be done the hard way? And oftentimes, I think the best answer Scripture gives us is that because God is more interested or more concerned with who we are becoming than our comfort, right? He, uh, the kind of looking at word images, fire oftentimes referred or um, reminds us of judgment for the unbeliever, but oftentimes for the believer, it has a refining effect or has a refining image. Essentially, it refines our faith in God. It purges the things that hinder us from getting close to God. And so oftentimes, I mean, you've probably experienced this yourself, that uh, oftentimes as we go through these trials, our faith is often built up, not... Um, not destroyed, and that essentially is the last point here uh, that I want to come to is that persecution often builds us up instead of destroying us. Right? We often are scared of persecution or trials because of because of um, we're not sure what it's going to do to us and our families, our job loss, uh, a death of a loved one, a cancer diagnosis, uh, you know, being told that uh, we can't worship the God that we serve, whatever the case may be, oftentimes it threatens our way of life. But I think it, it's uh, often it's good to remember, as we see in this story, all of the blessings that kind of come with the courageous stand that these boys take. So look at the, look at the rest of uh, chapter 3 there as we, as we read from 27 and down, um, actually 28 and down. Uh, we see that... Um, the, the, the king makes a new decree, right? I mean, this guy's got to be the craziest person in the world, right? He, he goes from, what God can ever save you from me to, like, if you talk about this, ill about this God, I will tear you limb from limb and, um, and, and burn you up and, you know, ex and, and do all these crazy things. And we, we uh, see that the king 
in a matter of, I don't know how long it took for all this to uh, um, happen, but uh, it seems that he shifts and he recognizes, whether it's temporary or permanent, we'll see as we go through along with the story, that he, he is uh, amazed by what, by what he sees. He's amazed to even know uh, that there is somebody or a God that these boys served that could have rescued them from him, from the king. And we see the, all of the benefits. Imagine uh, what that meant for the other Israelites that lived in exile, that were debating if they were going to bow down to this idol. The king makes a command that they don't have to do that anymore, that no one should speak ill about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king promotes uh, the three boys and showers them with more privileges than they had before. They, they, their influence in Babylon increases, not decreases. And oftentimes, though not all, all the time, when God brings us through a trial, we find this to be true. We find that our faith has grown. Uh, we find that we have a deeper appreciation for um, God's word uh, and prayer and the other spiritual disciplines. We find uh, that the community that God has brought around us uh, as necessary to support and we don't see this, uh, our faith journey as a lone ranger journey, but rather something that we do in community with people uh, that are following Christ too. And I, and I think it um, may not be apparent in the moment, but we can count, if the story tells us anything, as exiles we can count on God that he, bring, that he will bring us through. And that oftentimes that means that we are uh, people that look more like God, and that our faith has grown through the experience. I mean, imagine that these boys didn't go through the furnace. I mean, would they have experienced that uh, physical presence of that angel or the Son of God that was in the fire with them? Um, imagine how much that would have deepened their own relationship and trust in God. And I think this is true for all of us. If you look at the trials in our own lives, we see this to be the case, that our confidence in God grows as we experience him in the difficult moments. So that kind of nicely wraps uh, this story that we see in uh, Daniel chapter 3. Um, we see that the, the, the stand, courageous stand that the boys take, God, uh, they're vindicated, God's name is vindicated, and Nebuchadnezzar recognizes who really is the ultimate king. It doesn't last for long, just... Uh, preview for what's coming up next week, but uh, at least for this moment, he recognizes who the true king is. And I hope the story uh, has been encouraging to you as it has been to me as I've kind of spent time digging into it. Uh, and as kind of as we reflect on this idea of living as exiles, that we prioritize and we mold uh, and model our own lives and schedules and rhythms and routines of our families around God's priorities and not our own, that we trust that we're, when we're in the middle of a persecution or whether we're headed to one, that we recognize that God is going to be with us, that he's present with us, that he cares for us and that he loves us and that he, he is not asking us to uh, do this alone. He may not keep us from the furnace, but he, you can be sure that he's in the furnace with you, in the middle of that job loss, in the middle of that persecution that you're experiencing. So go and live as faithful exiles because God is with you and is watching over you. Let me pray for us.
Father, we thank you for this um, passage as we kind of look at it and study it and see, draw from it what it means for us as believers in the 21st century. Oftentimes these stories of ancient Israel and uh, Babylonian nations uh, can feel foreign or distant, but we know that these scriptures are here for our own edification. I pray that we reflect on the truths that we've learned and heard about this morning, that we, draw, that we have um, gleaned from this narrative um, into our own lives as exiles, that we don't give in to the pressure to fit in, to conform, to bow down for the sake of comfort, but rather that we stand up, that we ground our resistance and our worship in your identity as God. Whether you save us or not, we know that you are worthy, we know that you are able, and that we know that you are a good God that's watching over us. I pray that as we kind of uh, go through this week, that we uh, pay attention to how uh, we've put our own comfort over our worship where we've kind of compromised so that we don't have to stand out. Pray that every person, no matter what season of life they're in, that they are able to relate to the story and take these lenses um, with them, that they're able to evaluate their lives in light of your truth. I pray that you give each one of us grace to come to you when we fail, that we lean in on you when we don't have the strength. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.